Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his blood. That through his sacrifice, we do have forgiveness of sin. We have the hope of an expectation of an eternity with you. But also, he is our life in the present. As we look at a portion of Mark this morning, we want to be sensitive to who he is while he lived, but also who he is in the present. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. A couple of thought questions as we think about Christ and who he is. At whom does Jesus display anger? At whom does Jesus display anger? When Jesus was on this earth, what deeply distressed Jesus Christ? What deeply distressed Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ always what we might call a nice guy? Is Jesus Christ always what we might call a nice guy? Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, reading together verses 1 through 6. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Another time he, Jesus, went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath to do? Good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. These verses, though brief, demonstrate what was stated about Jesus or by Jesus in verse 28 of chapter 2. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was discussed in verses 23 through 28, and Jesus concludes that section by saying, you know, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and he demonstrates that in chapters 3, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And we find that when we get to this point in Luke that Jesus already had a reputation of being a blasphemer. In chapter 2 and verse 7, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? He was also known as a colleague of sinners in chapter 2 and verse 16. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw a meeting with sinners and tax collectors, they ask his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? He was also known as apostate in the sense that he was not following religious custom. 
He was also known as a Sabbath breaker in chapter 2 and verse 24. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Then we come to chapter 3. The writer says another time he went into the synagogue. So this is another Sabbath day sometime after what is happening at the end of chapter 2. We're dealing with events that are taking place on a Sabbath day in the synagogue. Now remember that the Pharisees, as we mentioned last week, had a whole list of rules that you were supposed to keep on the Sabbath day. And Jesus didn't always follow those rules. God designed the Sabbath to be a time of rest. We find in this passage, Jesus is one of the characters. And remember who Jesus is? He's the son of God in chapter 1. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. His father is well pleased with him. He taught with authority. He cast out demons. He forgives sins. We also find another character is the man with a shriveled hand. We just know that his hand was shriveled. That's all this said. Some of the other characters are the Pharisees. Remember their thinking. They're struggling with accepting Jesus, and it's kind of been building. They want to find fault with him. And then we find the disciples are also present. I think it's safe to assume because Simon, Andrew, James and John, Levi, and other people were following him. Now, what is taking place in the text? Apparently, the Pharisees are looking for a reason to accuse him. Verse 2, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely. Again, it's been building because in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, this guy that we're trying to find fault with, we want to accuse him. He thinks he can forgive sins. We also find in 16 and 17 that this guy, Jesus, has been hanging around with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, he called one of them to be a follower. In chapter 2 and verse 24, he's doing what the Pharisees considered to be unlawful on the Sabbath. So they're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, to speak against him. The idea of crimination, they want to make him a criminal. They're looking for that reason. They're watching him closely. And the idea of watching closely means hanging in the balance. If he heals, he's in trouble. If he doesn't heal, he's okay. But they're trying to accuse. So they watch very closely. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, apparently he knew their thoughts. He knew what they wanted to do. So he is challenging, he is going to confront the old wineskins, the old wine, showing them their true nature and intent. So what does he say? Stand up in front of everyone. 
has a guy with a shriveled hand stand up in front of them. And then in verse 4, then Jesus asked them, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. You will find since the beginning of time, God has been using questions to give people an opportunity to respond. Came to Adam, you know, and asked him a question, asked Eve a question. And we find throughout Scripture, God uses questions. Here we find Jesus Christ also uses a question. And it's a question that drives home a point. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Now, I think the obvious answer is to do good. They can't answer because if they say to do good, then Jesus gets to heal the guy. They say to, to, to do evil, then they're violating the whole design in the Sabbath. So they remain silent. But notice the second part of the question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? Now the Pharisees are looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Pharisees... Do you save life on the Sabbath? Or do you kill? So in essence, Jesus is kind of backing them against the wall. Are you going to save my life? Or are you going to kill? We know later on, they went out and how they plotted how they might kill Jesus. They knew they had been had. So what happens they remain silent. What is Jesus' response? He looked around them in deep anger. Anger is indignation, vengeance, punishment. Now here is the Son of God. Here is deity in human form. He's looking around at the Pharisees with indignation, vengeance, and punishment. He's angry. Not only is he angry, he is deeply distressed. He is grieved that religious people would respond in this way. Anger, distressed. You know, sometimes we paint Jesus as a nice guy who never responds, he just kind of floats along. He's angry. Indignation, vengeance, punishment. And he's grieved. And remember, this is expressed towards religious people. The Pharisees. Those who wanted to keep the Sabbath 
to the nth degree. Why is he angry? Why is he distressed? At their stubborn hearts. Stubborn heart. They had hard hearts. There was a callousness. There was an insensitivity. There was an unwillingness to understand. Religious people claiming to follow the Mosaic law, but they have stubborn hearts. Again, I emphasize religious people with stubborn, hard hearts. So what does Jesus do? He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out and his hand was completely restored. Pharisees' response is interesting. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they they might kill Jesus. Remember Jesus' question, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Jesus did good. He healed the man with a withered hand. And what are they doing? They're plotting to kill, even on the Sabbath. You know, this has been coming because there were some Sabbath violations that Jesus had done. In chapter 1, we know that he cast out a demon, a man who was demon-possessed. Be quiet, he says in verse 25, come out of him. And that was done on the Sabbath. We know also that Jesus in chapter 2, 23 through 28, which we discussed last week, as his disciples are walking through the grain field, they take some grain, rub it in their hands, and apparently ate it. They thought that was violation of the Sabbath. The Pharisees also have been moving towards plotting to kill because Jesus has been spending time with sinners. You know, the terrible of society whoever that may be in our culture today, Jesus spent time with them. He even invited a tax collector to follow him. He's disregarding the rabbinical custom. And that creates some problems because in 18 through 22, his disciples aren't fasting as the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees. He made the presumption that he could forgive sins. At the beginning of chapter 2, the man who was paralyzed, he healed him, and he also forgave his sins. Now they're plotting to kill the one who is Lord of the Sabbath. Religious people plotting to kill Jesus Christ.
See, in chapters 2, 1 through 3, 6, we find that the authority of Jesus is being showcased very, very clearly. He has the authority to forgive sins, to eat with sinners and tax collectors, to dispense with fasting, to supersede the Sabbath, to heal on the Sabbath. The passage is building because Christ is being revealed more and more. And the Pharisees have had enough. They with the Herodians plot to kill. His authority is both near and far, depending on how people respond to him. The Pharisees did not accept So what's the point of chapter 3, 1 through 6? I'm of the conviction that the point is Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, demonstrates he is Lord of the Sabbath by healing. His actions demonstrate his claim. And as Mark writes to believers in Rome, They would be encouraged because Jesus Christ is being revealed as a teacher with authority, as one who can command an evil spirit to come out of a man, who has authority over sickness and over demons, is able to forgive sins, thus he is God, knew the teachers of the law and what they were thinking. He healed the paralytic, showing that he had authority to forgive sins. He had authority to call tax collectors and sinners, and to dine with them. He came to call sinners. He is the bridegroom, the new patch, the new wine, and he is Lord of the Sabbath. As the Roman believers would hear this, they're being persecuted. They're lighting Nero's garden and so on. This is who Jesus is. We're going to continue to follow him in spite of what may come in our lives. What should be our response to Jesus and his identity as revealed in the Gospel of Mark? First of all, glory in Jesus Christ. Meditate upon him. Seek him as you live 24-7. How we think about Christ shows in our day-by-day living. How we think about Christ shows in our day-by-day living. How you think about Christ shows up in how you work on the job or how you respond in school. I've talked to enough unsaved workers that work with some of you And they have responded at times, yeah, I know so-and-so. They work different. Christ, glorying in him. You as a teen, you as a parent, how you, or I'm sorry, you as a teen or you as a child, how you respond to your parents is seen by others. I think I mentioned this before. But many times in public settings, I can tell believers from unbelievers by how kids respond to their parents.
parents in a public setting. It's just obvious. There's a different mindset, a different response. What does that come from? Glorying in Jesus Christ. The one who is the Son of God, the one who heals, the one who casts out demons and so on. Think about him. We become, to a large extent, what we think. So think about him. If we believe the claims of Mark concerning Jesus Christ, it will be obvious in our daily lives through dependency upon him as our life and joyful obedience that is found in the epistles. Now, if we believe Jesus is who Mark says he is, and we live that out in day-by-day life. As mentioned earlier, it shows up. If you read the newspaper, if you listen to people talk, there's a great deal of concern about the world in which we live. There's concern about the economy. You know, what's going to happen? We're going to raise a debt ceiling or we're going to leave it as is. And you look at what's happening in the Middle East. People are concerned. Do we live with confidence that in the midst of a messed up world, Jesus Christ is sovereign? So we don't raise this debt ceiling and something happens to our economy. You say, I'm really worried. Christ is who he claims to be in Mark 1, 2, and 3. We can live in light of that. We can read about what happened in Sudan, the two nations, or uh, Sudan becoming two nations as of yesterday knowing that thousands upon thousands upon thousands have been killed in the last 25 years. Christ remains who he claims to be in Mark. We face trials and struggles in our own lives. Priscilla a daughter with cancer. Christ is who he claims to be. That enables us to walk through that. A third way of responding to this passage is recognize that all religious leaders and religious systems, past, present, and future, are nothing in contrast to Jesus Christ. All religions and religious leaders, past, present, and future, are nothing in contrast to Jesus Christ. So recognize the emptiness of all religions. When I say reject them, don't follow them, you want to reach out to people who may follow them and seek to present Christ. It also should should challenge us to remain faithful to Jesus Christ when confronted by others. If you live for Jesus Christ, just seek to live in light of his word, there are times that you may experience rejection. Stand firm. 
So you go to school, you go to college, and you lovingly, wisely challenge the teacher concerning what may be taught about creation versus evolution. And the teacher publicly maligns you and makes fun of you. Stand firm for Jesus Christ because he is who he claims to be. It also helps us to live for Jesus Christ in the midst of rejection and persecution. You know the end and you know what's going to happen. Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. He demonstrates that he is Lord of the Sabbath as he heals the man with the withered hand. We're going to reflect further on Christ as we worship through communion. And as we worship through communion, I would encourage you to stop and think about and ponder Christ and who he is. As we have discussed this morning, that the Christ we have discussed this morning is the one who came, he lived, he died on the cross. He rose from the dead so that he can become our life. It's a time of celebration of the life we have in Christ. It's a time to remember what Christ has done. It's a time to glory in the body of Christ because we become one with other believers. So as we partake of communion, if you're a believer in Christ, you've trusted in Christ, I invite you to partake as the men come forward.